You're listening to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. The migration and refugee challenge is probably the biggest challenge the European Union has faced in recent years. The lines of conflict between and within EU member states run deep. The EU is divided on how to handle the internal and external dimensions of the so-called migration crisis. And the issue has not only become a security challenge, but also a tool in the fight for political power and identity, which especially populist movements across Europe try to exploit for their own gains. While some EU member states are seeking EU-wide agreement and coordinated action to address the migration and refugee challenge, others refuse to accept any obligations regarding the redistribution of migrants or the reform of the Dublin system which states that the asylum request by a third country national is to be presented to the first European country the person arrives in, usually either Italy or Greece, and where he or she was identified by local authorities. What's more, the question of how to handle asylum seekers also threatens the stability of governments within EU member states, as we recently witnessed in Germany. In this episode, we will discuss the current situation, failures and challenges in Europe on this issue with our migration and refugee policy expert, Julian Lehmann. Julian is a project manager at the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. He previously worked as a protection consultant for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Morocco. Julian, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Global Futures Podcast. Hi, Joel. It's nice to be with you. All right. So we're talking about migration and refugee uh, crisis, so on and so forth. Uh, you're going to break this down for us in a little bit because it's a massive topic. And let me just kick off by saying that more than a million migrants and refugees crossed into Europe in 2015, sparking the so-called EU migration crisis. And amongst other things, what it showed was that countries in Europe really struggled to cope with this influx, um, which created division in uh, EU and especially over how to uh, deal with re uh, resettling people. It also brought to the public's attention that migration, including forced migration, something you know a lot about, happens across the globe. So let me just start by asking you, what is it about this policy debate on refugees and other migrants in the EU uh, so interesting for other regions? I mean, first, let me maybe take this back a little bit and allow me a general remark on migration. Migration, the term suggests that we speak about one phenomenon, but in fact, it's an umbrella term uh, that includes uh, a variety of different forms of movement, of different forms of human mobility. You can count into migration the student that uh, comes to another country for an exchange semester. You can count in there the seasonal worker, the high-skilled worker, the low-skilled worker, the person who flees because of human rights risk. So it's an extremely vast uh, concept. So if we, when we talk about migration, it's sometimes good to dissect a little bit about who we speak. Um, but um, back to your question, human mobility, migration is normal and it happens all the time. Uh, it happens in some places more than it happens in others. And the EU really is an example of where it happens a little more. Uh, so if you look at, at the map, there is, a, there is basically three regional clusters of, of big migration spots. And the EU is one of these clusters. And you have more than 70 million people 
more than 70 million migrants uh, in the EU. Um, but you also have a lot of people who migrate elsewhere and who migrate in the EU. Uh, and they migrate in the EU because of policy decisions, because it has been decided to create one area of free movement. And that one area of free movement also brings us to the interesting aspects of the asylum debate. Basically, uh, because we have one area of, of free movement and the possibility to work everywhere as a EU citizen, the heads of states, uh, EU leaders also felt the need to create a common system of asylum rules. And that's that includes a whole bunch of different rules. It includes rules on which member state is responsible for an asylum application, what the eligibility criteria are, what happens after eligibility, uh, in, in case someone is re accepted as a refugee, in case someone is rejected as, an, as a refugee. And there even is a multilateral court that pronounces international or pronounces uh, binding judgments on those common rules. So that's what makes the EU special and what makes this so interesting also for other uh, other places. The EU is always good at uh, creating a whole set of rules and that's also what it did in, in the sphere of forced migration. But there are also negative sides and we can talk about uh, these in a second. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, that the EU has to create common rules to deal with the movement of people, as you said, because we have the freedom of movement within EU member states. But an outside observer would say, hey, look, we've watched it on tv we've read it in the news the the migration crisis to use this term has caused a lot of divisions within eu member states because they don't all share the burden if you will equally so my second question would be you know what are the, the to your mind the most important lines of conflict between or even within eu member states when it comes to the question of let's say forced migration I think the failures of the whole system have have cast a shadow on all the good intentions The last years demonstrate that you can have a really uh, well-designed, well-intended system of rules. And if you fail to address certain points adequately, then you risk to, to make all the rest uh, disintegrate in a sense. And, uh, and here I can take up your point of responsibility or burden sharing, because that's an excellent example of the primary weakness of one of the primary weakness of the set of rules that we have on forced migration in the European Union that that affects all the other areas. So when this uh, common European asylum system was created, heads of states thought that they would basically address the question of shared responsibility by saying that uh, states at the outside borders are by default responsible for deciding an asylum application. And that this rule would also push these states at the outside borders to then care for a tight border system or care for tight border protection. And uh, I think that's that's basically something that we that we see that hasn't worked in the past and uh, as I said really casts a shadow on all the rest. It's like you know it's like a cake where the topping is nice, but uh, you can never have it because the moment you try to eat the cake, the whole thing crumbles uh, because the dough is bad. I mean, it's the question of responsibility sharing is so fundamental to the whole acceptance of 
the whole framework of unforced migration, that, that it is really the, the big white elephant, if you like. It's interesting. So you were talking about countries on the outside borders of the European Union, which are really the entry points for people fleeing non-EU countries, let's say. And here I'm thinking about Italy and Greece uh, and Spain and France. And it's not a surprise that when you look around politics uh, within these countries, and even in Germany to an extent, and the UK, what we see is that the migration issue has threatened to bring down governments in these countries. How do we get to the situation where it has become such a powder keg that it will threaten to bring down what seems to, what seem to be stable governments, for example, uh, Germany's coalition? And as I just said, the asylum policies in the EU are, if you like, a history of successes as well as failures. And partly it's really the policy failures that allowed this thing to to slip out of hand politically speaking can you go and can you give us our listeners a little more insight into what you mean with policy failures i mean the, the whole question that i just mentioned of there not being an adequate framework of how responsibilities are shared in the european union that's a primordial policy failure And that's uh, also what what created uh, this impression of uh, the rules are unfair and what made it so easy for for those who wanted to to exploit the whole issue and say uh, the situation is is out of hand or is is uh, is out of control and uh, and around this whole discourse of there being a loss of control uh, lots of fears were created so so one part of the story is really the policy failures, but that's only half of the story. The other half is this, really. If we have learned one lesson, then then it's that migration is not a normal policy area. And it's not normal in that you can only argue with evidence so far. You can point to the numbers, but at the end of the day, the evidence only matters so much. And that's that's because perception matters, and that's because... Many of the issues around migration are like the perfect intersection of some of the thorniest polarizing questions out there that concern the European Union. So doing policies nationally versus multilaterally, uh, achieving security, facing Islamophobia, responding to populism, bridging the north-south divide in the EU, bridging the east-west divide even. Um, to none of this, there is an easy answer. So I'm I'm prone to think prone to thinking that even had there been better rules on responsibility sharing, we would still have similar debates and similar political threats to incumbent governance, if you like, right? Um, so so that's the two parts of the story. Yes, there is policy failures. And that's, uh, that concerns primarily the, the issue of fairness, which uh, have also meant that uh, the distribution of asylum seekers is, is not even and have created certain images that were easy, uh, easily exploitable. But then on the other hand, there is also this uh, inherent characteristic of this issue, which is so close to some of, some of the basic fears of the electorate. You mentioned that the whole migration issue is uh, an issue also of perception. Uh, and people can argue, yeah, perception is reality. Um, but, you know, we're sitting here in Berlin and we look around and it's not as though we see, you know, 
migrants uh, in every corner of the street. By and large, Berlin is still functioning uh, relatively normally, if you will. And, uh, you know, we don't see heaps of migrants, if you will, like crowding the streets and so on. But yet we see the rise of a party like the uh, Alternative for Germany, the AfD. Uh, and we've seen in the past years populist movements in the eastern part of Germany really coming up and, and, and taking up a lot of media space, news space. And yet there's very few migration uh, settlements uh, in eastern uh, part of Germany. So if perception is reality, but there's really not that many migrants in parts of the country in Germany where uh, there's an AFD stronghold, how, how can one who's a non-EU, non-German observer understand this phenomenon? I think you partly uh, answer the question already by pointing to the media space. And this is something that we have also observed through the last weeks and months of the government crisis that we had around migration. So um, what you see in the polls is that uh, since the topic was omnipresent, the incumbent government loses. And I don't think, I, I cannot think of any situation where an incumbent government can win votes when the topic is so prominent. So we can't, um, I mean, obviously, uh, best answer would be uh, to address the reasons of those fears. And, and I'm, I'm all for it. And, uh, and, and that would involve probably other uh, policy debates on questions of social justice, uh, on, on mitigating the effects of globalization, uh, on what digitalization will do to our jobs on social changes in demographics uh, and so on and so forth. All of these are very big questions, but sort of the immediate thing in here uh, that, that I think is the lesson for the migration discourse is try to not at least uh, spur a debate in which the electorate thinks the situation is out of control. And that's what partly happened in this recent migration crisis. So even if the situation at the border changed dramatically over the past years, even if we only see a handful of people uh, crossing every day that have already been registered in other EU countries, it's that tiny group of people who became the center of the debate, uh, which was all around can we push back at the borders people who have already been registered, uh, asylum seekers who have already uh, registered an asylum application in another EU country? And that was, uh, in a sense, absurd. And that's, uh, that's, in a sense, feeding the irrationality of the migration discourse by being irrational yourself. And that's a political mistake. And uh, no political force, no central political force that is interested in not having a right-wing populist party taking away the very foundation of what our liberal democracies strive on, namely rational discourse. None of these uh, actors should be interested in, in doing such a uh, thing and in committing such error. Let's stay in Germany for a little bit since we're talking about politics here uh, on the home front. The German coalition government disagrees on how to handle migration and secondary movements of asylum seekers. 
Could you begin by explaining to our listeners what secondary movement means and perhaps briefly say a few words on what is the current state of play on this issue? And secondary movement really is an interesting issue. So it's basically used when we talk about asylum seekers, and it's basically a term that is used for an asylum seeker who has registered in one EU country and then decides to move on. And that can be at different stages. It can be, you know, just registering, just giving fingerprints, uh, not even lodging an asylum application, then moving onwards. It can be lodging an asylum application, moving onward. It can be, uh, you know, waiting the decision on the asylum application and then after rejection or even an acceptance, moving onwards. So all of that is secondary movement. And secondary movement is really the reason why I said in the beginning that EU heads of state, heads of states uh, decided to develop a common European asylum system. Because the common European asylum system, the common rules on eligibility, on on which member state is responsible for an asylum application were really designed to prevent secondary movement. So the prevention of secondary movement is a policy goal uh, that's that's still out there and and that's uh, sort of lingering in in the back. And uh, whenever we talk about the reform of the of the current rules, this buzzword of secondary movements uh, will always be present in the debates. And what, where does the debate stand now in on the on secondary movements in Germany, because as I said earlier, there was a disagreement amongst the German coalition. Is that over now? What have they agreed on? Or is it still lingering in the air? So the disagreement in the German coalition was around the question of whether you can send someone back immediately at the border uh, who has already been registered elsewhere. And legally speaking, that's, uh, that's not possible. You can't send someone, like push back someone immediately. But that's only part of the whole debate around secondary movements. The bigger question is the reform of the so-called Dublin regulation, which is the law that decides which member states is um, which member state is responsible for dealing with an asylum application. And um, really, the debate around the reform of the Dublin regulation is an emblematic example of where we stand around issues on forced migration in the European Union. Because the EU Parliament has debated the reform of this law multiple times. Uh, and after endless deliberations said in, in March 2018, here's our proposal, two-thirds majority. And uh, now over to you, heads of states. Now you can decide what to do with that or, I mean, negotiate with us. And and basically, we haven't seen any progress on the reform of that law because uh, the, the heads of state are so, so torn, so much in disagreement. So um, when you ask what's the, what's the current uh, state of play, there is stalemate, I think, on one of the primordial aspects of the set of rules on forced migration. There has been a long-awaited EU Council at uh, the end of June. And basically what it showed was that anything that concerns the internal aspects of the European Union, so anything that happens on EU territory, 
is always problematic, is never really agreed on fast. And everything that happens outside the European Union is agreed on fast. And, and an example for that is these so-called regional disembarkation platforms where, where the suggestion is let's handle asylum applications outside EU territory even. And that's a chimera. Let's stick with this for, for a moment because it's interesting. You mentioned the common European uh, asylum system a couple of times now. Uh, at the end of June this year, the EU Council held a summit to discuss the internal and external dimensions of migration policy and reforms to uh, the common European asylum system, which in short grants asylum to people fleeing persecution or serious harm in their own country and therefore need uh, international protection. My question is, where does the EU Council stand now on this discussion and reforms? And do you think this is going in the right direction? I mean, let me maybe take up this point of the regional disembarkation platforms uh, to answer that question. And partly, partly let me refer also back to the previous question on the state of play on the Dublin regulation, because that's really an enormous aspect of this whole system. The regional disembarkation platforms are one... A suggestion that we found in in the council conclusions of uh, late June, and uh, I think why it is so important to stress that uh, that uh, there is this suggestion is because heads of state know that it's practically and legally extremely difficult to go forward with such a suggestion, let alone to have the the the, the states uh, outside the EU. To have them um, declare their their willingness uh, to actually uh, have centers established on their territories in which asylum applications would be handled, right? So you are in a situation where you know what you suggest really doesn't make any sense in the short term. It's not going to happen in the short term. And I think uh, everyone is aware of that. And yet the suggestion is out there. And I think it's to conceal the fact that there is uh, so little agreement on on uh, the most important aspects that happen on EU territory. And why do you think there's so little agreement? Because what happens in... In, for example, in Greece and Italy and Spain and France, it's not that uh, other European countries are necessarily immune to it. Yeah, one one response that uh, we have seen was uh, let's uh, let's create so-called hotspots uh, at EU outside EU uh, EU external uh, states, um, and basically that's centers in which you try to centralize uh, the reception of. Uh, uh, asylum seekers arriving by boat and then um, in case uh, there, then there was a certain quota for a certain people to be relocated elsewhere and uh, that uh, hotspot approach uh, basically didn't work because or I mean probably the fact that it didn't work takes it a little bit too far but there there still is reluctance by many member states to take part in such relocation schemes to accept people from the hotspots you also have questions of detention or can you can you hold people in these in these hotspots for longer for longer times uh, what are what about the reception conditions what does it do with the communities in which this takes place so this is one of the this is one of the eu answers to the crisis 
And it shows that, I mean, it, it, it basically casts also a shadow on, on the reform of the Dublin uh, regulation because uh, it shows that uh, there will be lots of states that don't voluntarily take people from other EU countries. And yet, uh, most of the decisions around reform always revolve around we have to have every member state on board. We have to make sure that member states agree to taking in emergency situations to take uh, asylum seekers from other EU countries and and so on. I mean, and, and the reason why I mentioned the, the hotspot approach is because this approach shows the weak link. And it again, it again uh, revolves around this whole question of responsibility sharing. Well, if this approach isn't working, what about alternatives? Do you see any other way that the EU can handle the issue of forced migration? I think uh, we clearly need more Europe rather than less in, in the asylum policies. And in the medium term, it would be best to have asylum applications of those arriving at, at the external borders, at least, be decided swiftly in the frontline states. And then in case of a positive decision, have these people allocated to different EU countries. And uh, that would have to take into account family ties, work marking needs, the size of, of the EU countries, and, and, and so on. So it's a little bit uh, what has also been debated in this, uh, in this reform of uh, the Dublin law. I think the problem that I described is to get the member states buy-in. And how do you get the member states buy-in? See, that's the, the $1 million question. I think for the, for the moment, it looks like there cannot be anything else but what is frequently referred to as flexible solidarity that people have, or not people, but that uh, uh, member states have different ways to, to contribute to the common European asylum system, right? Not only by taking people, but, but also by, by uh, contributing to uh, the uh, European Union Asylum Support Office or by contributing to the Coast Guards uh, or the EU External Border Agency Frontex. And uh, that we move away from, from this goal that there should be a kind of homogenous distribution of people according to gross national product and population size and territory size. And we accept the fact that this is uh, simply not going to happen because the political realities uh, in, in the member states are different. Uh, and then the other thing for this, uh, for this to work is really that we need uh, swift uh, asylum procedures. You know, the, the status quo is that someone lodges an asylum application and the asylum application can, can be rejected or accepted. And basically the states are fearful that if they are responsible for an asylum application, even if the asylum application is rejected, the person is going to stay there forever. So um, whatever system you design will have to take account of that fear. And uh, one of the answers is, is to have swift procedures so that the moment you do the allocation, the moment you send someone to another country, uh, taking into account his or her own preferences, it is clear whether that person is, is actually having a status, uh, is actually either a refugee or has received uh, another, uh, another international protection status, what we call subsidiary protection in the European Union.
I mean, you've said this before already, getting the buy-in of um, the other EU member states is going to be a million-dollar question. I think it's a billion-dollar question these days. But since this migration topic is such a big one, I want to leave you with also a big question, <laughs> a very broad question, and that is you've already described quite systematically the problems that we're facing in the EU when it comes to forced migration or just the mobility of people from outside the EU area. How do you see the problems that we've discussed right now elsewhere on the global level? I mean, refugee situations differ very much in different places. But one very weak spot of the whole refugee response system um, clearly is the question of responsibility sharing. And uh, at least from the perspective of industrialized countries, one weak link is the fact that one country uh, that is territorially far away from a conflict will have no refugees and uh, and then the other uh, will be that is very close to a conflict spot will have to take the bulk of the response so so in a sense this link of territory and 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 granting asylum which is making this so hard but uh, i mean to end probably with uh, with a more positive note i think on this very question of how you can achieve more responsibility sh uh, sharing Uh, there is there is quite some debate at the international level with uh, the global compact on refugees being developed uh, pioneered by by uh, UNHCR based on what they call uh, a comprehensive refugee response framework which is basically a blueprint of how different actors should deal with a larger influx of uh, refugees when it happens And while that is uh, not not a binding thing, I think we're in a situation for the first time in decades that we seriously debate questions of responsibility sharing on a, on a global level. And I and I think that's also something for the EU to keep in mind because its common European asylum system is uh, is in theory at least so strong. Uh, the EU is uh, almost like a leader when it when it comes to this rules framework, and uh, they should keep in mind that uh, whatever. A system of responsibility sharing they they now design it uh, it will also have ramifications on on how it is perceived internationally great thank you very much julian for uh, being with us despite your busy schedule and i want to say thanks also for your thoughts and sharing your thoughts on the global futures podcast and good luck with your important work thank you joel This episode of the Global Futures Podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugrobova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Julian Lehmann. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.